Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Nothing personal word of the day is lepitard. Yes, I am sitting with Dan Levitard. Hard to imagine. It's been a long time. Dan, how are you? Levitard, the word means illegitimate son of the king in French, uh, except not uh, the king. I added that part in order to make it uh, feel more royal. You know, what's funny is I just called you Dan, and I don't call you that. I've always called you Levitard. I was thinking back. I wanted. I had so many things in my mind. I appreciate that you wanted to sit down with me and as we talk, because we talk on the air for so many years, off the air for so many years. And I realized that I call you Levitard and you call me Samson. And I think it's interesting the way we met. <clears throat> and that's what I was thinking about last night, thinking about what we talk about this morning. People just wouldn't believe it. I tell family and friends sort of about our history. And it's very bizarre to me that you are a writer, right? People know you more so now for what you do on the air, ESPN and your radio show. When I met you, you were a writer for the local paper of a team who I had to convince to help me in the public forum of Inc. Uh, I don't remember uh, that meeting. I do remember uh, gravitating toward uh, you being a little bit off kilter. I tend to uh, to gravitate toward the weirdos, whether it's Ricky Williams or John Amici, uh, the people who are eccentric, who aren't uh, afraid to be themselves. So, um, yeah, I, I do remember finding you interesting. I don't remember the details of how it is uh, that we met, but I was always looking for interesting people to talk to and interesting things to write about. Uh, I think you know this. Uh, writing is the thing that I'm actually best at. The other stuff is cotton candy. Well, you say cotton candy, you are the candy man because you have all this content that you have to do. But I need to remind you how we met. You were on a list when we came to Florida from Montreal in 2002. We were given a list of people in the community who we had to get to know and convince to be on our side in order to get financing for the stadium and to try to change the Marlins future and they come off Heisinga and Henry, and you were a columnist. I saw your name as a columnist for the Miami Herald. I hadn't read you before. I had, because I was in Montreal, and before that, I was in New York. And so I remember at the time, there was, uh, there was the Herald, there was the Sentinel, Greg Cody as well, who is in your universe. And when I started, when I met you, first of all, I was overtaken by your size because the picture, when you write a column, all you see is a little sort of square photo. So there's no frame of reference. And when you first walked in, I met you at a at pro player. I was taken because you are this huge guy that you can't really tell even in a Zoom like this. So that intimidated me to start with. Uh, I didn't realize that you guys had a like handbook on who it is to meet uh, that was passed down to Jeter, evidently, because I got summoned to meet him, too, when uh, when he took over. So I didn't realize that there was a, 
a playbook that you guys are following when you get to a city, hey, you got to uh, talk to these people. But I don't think that anybody in your universe would uh, say that you successfully corralled me into being a supporter of uh, Marlins management. Uh, it actually went the opposite. Uh, you were you were the biggest bane of my existence over the years because in my career, there was never a bigger gulf between reality that I perceived and the fantasy that people I worked with perceived or friends of mine perceived because I have a reputation of being very straightforward and being very controlling. And people thought this whole time, Levitard, that you've been controlling me, that every time I go on your show, that everything I say is because you have gotten me to say it. Those are people that underestimate you. Those are people who don't know you very well, or those are uh, people that just want to give me uh, credit as like a really sophisticated manipulator. I'd say E, all of the above, but I think the last thing you said is what I've heard the most, that, David, you don't realize you are being outmatched. I heard this a lot. You are being outwitted. This is pre-Survivor days. You are being outwitted by Levitard. Every time you go on his show, you are hurting the cause of the Marlins. But how did they not understand? You just threw in the phrase before I went on the Survivor show. How did they not understand that at your core, you're an entertainer? At your core, um, you like the back and forth jostling of a public challenge, a public debate. Uh, they, they didn't like the way that you represented the organization on the radio. And all you were doing is giving interesting sound, but it runs contrary to sort of what public relations ever wants, right? Because if you want to find uh, defense, the best defense for good content, Walk into your local public relations office. It's a good place to go because they just want to be afraid of everything. That's what they are. And not just that we're afraid of you. Let me give some frame of reference for the, the viewers and listeners. I was a guest on the Levitard show back early in the day in the 2003, 2004. Uh, as early on, we would review movies every week and we talk and I would say things honestly and we'd tell stories. And my owner, Jeffrey Loria, my head of PR, PJ Loyello, uh, all of the assistants to PJ, all of the general managers I worked with, Larry Beinfest, Michael Hill, all of them, every manager, including Jack McKeon, all the 20 managers, they would all at separate times try to divide and conquer and tell me that I should not do your show because I'm, it's so bad to let Lebetard in on what happens. And I would say, listen, this is just entertainment. You guys are missing the point. It's content. And no one got it until Jeffrey Laurie actually kicked me off your show. He threatened me with my job. And I remember that phone call that we had when I had to call you and tell you what happened. Well, it was very disappointing to you because you enjoyed doing it. And that lane, David, believe it or not, and I'm sure you're having success with this podcast for a similar reason, that counterculture lane has been open for 20 years for us in a way that I find flabbergasting because it makes me want to slap my forehead. The idea, I'm grateful for it, but the idea of how do you guys not realize that games are entertainment? Like, why are you applying serious standards to games? Like, what you wouldn't do that with your PlayStation. You wouldn't do that with your Monopoly board. You wouldn't do that with any other games. But we do it with sports in a way that's weirdly sacred. But yet you found a niche 
where you you're the tagline is often people you don't get the show. That's something that's been very commonly said about you and your circle. And it's also come up with ESPN where you've had your issues. And I was thinking one of the things about you personally, and this comes from your background, it comes from the way you are with your family, friends, you take a position and it's very hard for you. And this, we are very similar in this way. When you are told by someone that you can't talk about something or you cannot reflect on something, you feel as though you're being pounded down in a way that isn't right. How have you been able to react to that? Because I'm struggling with that a little bit on nothing personal. When the phone rings and people are saying, listen, I don't like what you're saying, but by the way, the numbers are good, so keep saying it. Well, success helps, right? Uh, the, the trickier parts of it were early on uh, when success was harder to measure, but with success comes freedom, and freedom is always front lobe for me. Like, there's at this point, David, there's no reason for me to do this unless it's going to feel some version of fun and free. Um, I have always been somebody who values going back to the columnist days and going back before that to my parents and my grandparents, uh, the idea that you don't censor free thought, but certainly not around this realm, like certainly not around the games and the nonsense. So uh, we've always done things like talk to you about the movies or talk to Ron McGill about the animals or just go find interesting people to discuss interesting things so that you can lure them into the tent so they're listening when you're actually talking about the important societal stuff because you're a communal ground where people like to laugh and uh you know one of the greatest compliments i get and it's it's stark um and it's impactful and it's unusual and it's unintended uh is when people tell us in some form that we brought them through a dark time. Uh, we get it a lot and a lot, just a ton in terms of uh, how we exist in your head, or if you happen to be a person going through a lonely period, uh, the laughter is a bit of a um, of a guide. And so it lures people to us. And now the community is so large that it, you know, it emboldens us. But you hit the third rail a couple times. Uh, yeah, well, the world changed. America changed. Uh, the, the company I work for changed, and so I'll keep bumping against it. It's part of the, it's part of the charm. Like we, uh, part of the reason that we're successful. I don't know how much of this is the reason, but a, certainly a portion is that we feel a little bit dangerous. You don't know what's going to happen every day because I might go up against the third rail any day because I don't really need this job. And so uh, if something is important enough to say, I'm going to try and figure out a way to say it, even if I have to sort of navigate the labyrinth of leadership at the highest levels of the company in order to do so. Athletes call that FU money, right? FU money is when you have the ability to do whatever you want in a clubhouse or do whatever you want with the front office or the GM, because if you get released, you have enough money. Uh, and so you say that. But what's interesting to me is when you look at the arc of your career or of my career, you get to a point where that you, you, the feelings are the same, right? Nothing's changed for you from 20 years ago to now. You have that emotion, you have that passion. But what has changed is your platform is big enough 
where you're not as worried about bumping up against the third rail because you say you're going to navigate, right? That's an interesting concept. Navigating the upper realms of an organization, it works far better when you're navigating in waters that you control. When you're navigating in waters you don't, Dan, that's when it becomes an issue. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, You can have issues with corporate management at any point because corporate management's issues aren't going to be aligned with, you know, me being a freedom fighter or Dan Quixote or whatever. But uh, I figured a long time ago in college when I'm watching David Letterman and he's going after his bosses on television where he's making fun of them in the monologue, I'm like, that seems interesting to me. That seems brave. That seems fun. I saw Rachel Maddow do it differently. At at some point, it's almost expected of you, David, uh, if you're given the platform and you're given the support by that community, uh, it's there's an expectation of that responsibility that you're not going to run and hide from PR. You're not going to run and hide uh, from people in power uh, who are going to make things more antiseptic. You're going to challenge people. You're going to speak truth to power. So, But are you uh, finding I, I, that harder, though, Dan, with a relationship, if you have a different relationship with a different president of a network you're at versus, versus another, is it, is it easier to do with the better relationship you have with that power? Well, you know what's funny about my previous relationship uh, at the company, I didn't realize how much it was protecting me because the way that I was hired, um, I was hired because I had been in Miami and I had told everybody when I was being offered jobs, this is another reason, it's not FU money as much as it is knowing that I will have the ability to do this elsewhere. I will have the ability to do it wherever it is that I want, no matter where it is that I'm working. But when I came to ESPN at the beginning, uh, I had always told people I had been offered jobs in New York and Los Angeles. I'm like, no, it has to be in Miami. It has to be something more Miami than I already am. What I am in Miami right now is I'm the lead sports columnist. I'm the lead afternoon drive time radio host. And I'm the guy that ESPN goes to on television when they need something in Miami. It has to be more Miami than that. And so what they gave me was a television show with my father. They took on everybody on our radio show. They put it at the Clevelander in Miami and they let my brother do the art for the show. So they made it more Miami than what it is that I was doing. And so I just kept doing the job the way that I had always done the job without realizing, um, you know, that lawyers and PR people and all that stuff were bothering me. We've got a very good executive producer, Mike Ryan, his chief job for, for the, you know, the very beginning of our time through a good amount of our time at ESPN was to protect me from that, to be a buffer between me and, um, you know, people who might want to get their fingers uh, on what we were doing. Uh, We've had um, a pretty extraordinary editorial independence, uh, and then uh, leadership changed, the country changed, the president of the company and the president of the country changed, but I've got a good relationship with the president of the present company. They've got a new policy. Um, I'm leaving that alone, uh, but not before having said what I had to say about the subject. Do you, do you regret that? And I was thinking about the two things that come to mind where the third rail was hit. One is, is obviously what happened on the presidential side. Two is the Hall of Fame ballot, which is the only time we actually had an argument 
people think I, people don't really understand our relationship and how different it is on air versus off air. But we actually had one of our hardest discussions. I was so upset with you with what you did with the Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, for people who don't know that story, Dan is a writer, right? Levitard writes. And when you write, you get to be in the Baseball Writers Association. When you're in there long enough, you actually get a ballot to vote baseball players into the Hall of Fame. You have to be 10 years a member. And what Levitard did, and I, I guess, tell us in your words what you did, because I know how I would say it. Uh, well, Deadspin called me, and they were trying to do some anarchy where they bought a Hall of Fame voters vote and gave it to their readers to select their own ballot. Uh, they had somebody ready to do it. And I said, well, give me a call if that falls through. Like, I'm not particularly interested or not interested. But if it falls through, I might help you guys out. And so uh, it did fall through, I guess, cold feet or something happened. And I like the idea of because I'm against the sanctimony of games in general, but particularly the gatekeepers on that enshrinement where, you know, A-Rod all of a sudden is the face of baseball, but Barry Bonds is persona non grata, even in, you know, San Francisco, where they scrub away the memories of Barry Bonds. Like I didn't like the sort of inconsistencies. That's the best way I could put it. Hypocrisies about how the steroid ballots were going. I knew I wasn't going to have any impact in being able to alter the way the steroid ballots were going because I understood that most of us in competitive fields, if you offered us what was then a nebulously legal fountain of youth, all of us would take it, all of us who aren't competitionaholics like athletes. So I sort of understood the terrain and thought it was, you know, I've always objected to moralizing with my sports. And so I'm like, what's a fun, funny way that I can contribute to this? I wasn't looking for it. But once they came to me, I'm like, oh, this is a funny circus. This is, I'll, I will charge at this, you know, uh, paper mache windmill and see if I can knock it over. So you didn't knock it over, though. Because oh, the, no, I didn't. It, That's it, right. Right. So it didn't work. And my frustration is you have such a great platform and you're so good at writing. You could have every year filled out a ballot responsibly and explained every year and tried to convince people all the points you just made now. Those got lost in the wind by the idiocy of the move you made. I have been doing that. I disagree with you on the idiocy of it. You can sit here and tell me, as many people would, that it was too look at me. It was making myself the story. And there was certainly some of that cloaked in uh, integrity or faux integrity, if you feel like criticizing it. But they produced a great ballot. And I never had to make the decision of what they produced the same ballot I would have produced. And I never had to make a decision about whether or not I would have submitted the ballot. This part would have been more interesting if someone had, you know, nominated Ron Karkovice or something. And all of a sudden I had to vote for Ron Karkovice. But there were no jokes on my ballot. The ballot was a clean ballot. And my further opinion is that many baseball writers in the advanced metrics era, and this was just during when the advanced metrics were catching on, didn't actually know as much as the people writing for fan graphs or the people making fun of the mainstream writers who were protecting their votes, their power, and their beloved Hall of Fame. And so I was like, let me prove it by throwing it out to the masses. And the masses came back with a better ballot than the average ballot. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Do you think that other people can do your job as well as you do? Because you're saying in the Hall of Fame ballot instance, because there are analysts out there, who, who have the ability to look at numbers and, and all of the advanced metrics that they can do a clean ballot, by the way, pun intended, I assume. How about the number of people who have blogs or podcasts or what makes you different and why did you think you were not different in terms of your ability to do that sort of ballot? I just, I disagree so firmly on this with you. Well, and you think it's a failed experiment as we continue to talk about it and you don't remember how anyone else voted on anything when it comes to the Hall of Fame. Like, we continue to talk about this thing. I continue to get asked about this thing. This is one of the greatest controversies of my sports journalism existence, but I love it as a symbol for who I am. Like, how does this not fit exactly in the person that you know beyond everything that we do professionally? This fits with who I am, the the doing of that. I'm actually surprised it doesn't fit with who you are because it doesn't fit that you would uh, treat the Hall of Fame as something so sacred that I couldn't fuck with it. It's not that for me, right? It's it's that I I take the platform that you have and that I had, and I'm growing in a different arena now, but I took the platform I had as president of a team for 18 years. I took it seriously. That doesn't mean I didn't like jocularity. It doesn't mean that I regret going on shows with you or saying the things or creating the headlines, which by the way, every headline we created together, I knew what I was doing, even back in your Moss Miami situation, which was another personal problem you and I had, which was a phone call I'll never forget, which I want to get to. But no, I think that having a platform comes with responsibility. And you can say that you believe that we're still talking about it and you believe this is it it fits with you, but you're bigger than that. So the people asking you about it now, I'm not talking to you about it because you made a point or because you're still getting attention about it six years later. I'm talking about it because I'm not used to you making what I think are bad decisions with your power and your platform. 
but I don't think it's a bad decision. We're talking about mocking an award show. Like we're, we're talking about mocking one of the cathedrals in sports. Like I still don't think it's a bad decision. I have zero regrets about that. When that happened, ESPN actually called me. This was the first problem I really had with anybody at ESPN. Uh, but they were hurt that I had done it uh, on Deadspin because Deadspin was sort of a mortal enemy of ESPN. And I didn't realize at the time, this is the only portion of it that I regret. I didn't realize that I was hurting the feelings of some people who viewed Deadspin as a mortal enemy and viewed that as a betrayal of ESPN. But the arguments I was having with people at ESPN at the time were very cleanly along these lines where they were saying, why didn't you do it uh, with us on our platforms? And I'm, I'm like, because it's weak as hell to do it on our platforms. It just becomes gas bagging and pontificating the same way that I've been doing for the last 10 years on our platforms. It becomes something dangerous, weird, scandalous, because I'm doing it on another platform. I've sold my vote, even though I wouldn't take a dollar from them. They said, can we give you a dollar just to say that we sold the vote? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not allowing you to buy the vote. I'm doing this because you asked me. I didn't go looking for it. And it fits with uh, who I am and some of the things that I believe. And uh, let's go make a funny mess because my orders upon getting to ESPN, by the way, this is part of the backstory. These were my orders. Uh, when I was hired, I don't know whether it was 4,000 employees or whatever, but uh, there was very much a sort of uh, Bristol mindset where you came up through the pipeline, you learned uh, the ESPN things in ESPN, and it was hard to sort of budge uh, and get people to have a little more looseness and take a, take a few more chances when you were trying to change the culture of 4,000 people. So I was one of whatever, a dozen fire starters meant to influence. And it was that and putting up some billboards that got me suspended in Akron, Ohio, where I was mockingly again uh, saying, you're welcome, LeBron, on billboards uh, after he left Miami because, um, you know, the Miami stuff is actually stuff that has always mattered to me. Much like you're sitting here seriously protecting the Hall of Fame in a way that seems to run counter to the ways that you normally think about attacking the uh, the sacred calves. Um, I am protective that way of uh, my Miami allegiances and just how much this city has done for me in terms of helping boost us and make us what we are. Uh, you got to be specific. You just dropped an us. So by us, you're talking about Cuban people. Well, I mean Cuban people. I mean my family, but I also mean our radio show. Like it doesn't become what it is without Miami's fervent, uh, overzealous support. It doesn't become what it is without, you know, that ridiculous Miami Heat team from 2010 to 2014. Like uh, the success that we have had, it doesn't become what it's become if Miami hadn't been totally shitty at sports for 20 years so that I could do a national show um locally without you're welcome yeah (laughs) yeah you guys man i mean Dwayne wade did all the winning here for 20 goddamn years for 20 years nobody else could win a fucking playoff game it's unbelievable so i've been in he i moved here in 2002 
And so the, the Heat obviously have been hugely successful. What people don't realize and how hard it is with fans, do you remember after Shaq left before LeBron came at American Airlines Arena, they actually curtained off the upper deck, which is something the Marlins did all the time, even in the new ballpark. But there were not a lot of fans going to those games in the in-between time, but people seem to gloss over that fact. Well, in the in-between time, though, uh, what ended up happening is everyone realized that Miami, you probably realized this, that Miami is a star bleeper town. Like, we, we gather around, we do support the good parties. Hell, your team still has the largest World Series attendance ever for a game, I believe. I believe that's the largest one ever because uh, we support these things when they become big and shiny and famous. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know whether I've told you the story, I've told it on the radio, but my father, the 96 uh, Florida Panthers run, my father from Cuba, who doesn't know the color of a blue line, there's nothing in hockey that he would know about. Uh, He thought the puck was made of metal. He was crying in the stands of, um, you know, during the playoff run as they ran through, you know, Lemieux and uh, Lindros and all those guys because uh, we are a front-runner town, my friend. There's a lot of front-runner towns. And by the way, the Panthers, that's a story. That's a story that we've never talked about, that there are two arenas here in Miami, one in Miami, one in Broward, because Mickey Arison and Wayne Huizinga could not, and I heard the story from both sides, from Huizinga and from Arison, where they could not come to agreement on sharing an arena. So they both took their toys and built separate arenas. So like when Springsteen comes through, he has to choose, am I going to the AAA or am I going to whatever it's called now, the BB&T Center where the Panthers play? Miami is just so screwed up. It's, it's the craziest place. And trying to navigate it politically and from an entertainment standpoint, it has made me five foot five. I think my favorite story from among like all of those ownership fights and Heizenga, who uh, got in on Blockbuster at the right time and got out of Blockbuster at the right time, really a brilliant businessman. He had an enormous plan to build sort of a sports Disney world down here in South Florida. But my favorite thing was how he tried to get around the rule that you can only own so many teams in a market by propping up his stiff brother-in-law where everyone knew that that dude didn't have the the financial wherewithal to be in the game. But I think it was his brother-in-law. God, I can't remember that dude's name. He even had a funny name. But he was just, um, you know, it was just sort of a funny uh, sports mafia move to uh, to try and give it over to his brother-in-law because I think he was trying, was it the Heat that he was trying? I think he was trying to buy the Heat, wasn't he? He had the Panthers and the Marlins and the Dolphins. And he was trying to make it the golden sombrero. Is that what it's called when you have like four strikeouts in a game? He wanted a monopoly on the whole thing. He didn't like, by the way, he didn't like sports. Uh, Whit Watson, I think, was his name, was the brother-in-law's name. Whit, uh, ah, do I have that right? Or is that an ESPN anchor? Man, with age, I'm getting worse and worse at names. But that's a that was a golden time in Miami sports. He didn't like sports, and he's more responsible than anyone for making South Florida Major League. Well, there's no doubt. He brought expansion. I mean, he was the guy. But I remember we, we brought him back at the end, the last game at Pro Player in 2011. 
and uh, he was cheered where he had always been booed. People, Miami's very bizarre. Booing Wayne Huizinga when the only reason you have sports is Wayne Huizinga for the most part. And uh, he didn't bring the Dolphins. Obviously, Joe Robbie, I think, was the family who brought the Dolphins or had the Dolphins here. But Wayne Huizinga, he was just a complicated man. And ironically, he hated Miami. Hated Miami. Yeah, he, he was a Broward. Broward guy. Yes, he was a Broward guy. He didn't have much use uh, for Miami. But the reason that he was hated is because of how seismic a betrayal that felt like to South Florida immediately after they gave him the biggest World Series crowds that anyone had ever seen in 1997. He blew up the team. Um, but that's revisionist history. That's revisionist history, Dan, and I'm so tired of it because we were the babies thrown out with the bathwater when we came after Henry and Huizinga. Wayne Huizinga went public in 97 to you, you, the citizens of Miami, and said, listen, if you don't build me a ballpark, whatever we do, if we win the World Series or we finish in last place, these players are being traded. He didn't decide it during the World Series. It was decided beforehand, and the public could have stepped up and done a deal. Stunning that fans wouldn't believe lying ownership about the losing of dollars. I'm surprised that he was actually telling the truth. He did actually tell everybody what was going to happen. But even as it was happening, I couldn't believe it was happening. Even as I'm talking to Moises Alou and he can't go to the White House, I'm at the White House with the Marlins that are remaining, the remnants of the Marlins, and Moises Alou is telling me, I'm not going to the White House. I'm too busy and I feel betrayed because they've broken up this team. And he was too busy because he was at a Dominican horse track. He couldn't go <laughs> to the White House. Um, yeah, that was, uh, that was. I think you're vastly underestimating. Uh, and I understand that the facts run contrary and there is some revisionist history here. But I think you're vastly underestimating how much that hurt. You should know. I mean, you, you got stained by all of it, and then you guys did the same damn thing. Well, we didn't do the same damn thing at all. All we did was take players at some point. You're talking about the 2012 trade. When I did a show with you, we made a trade in 2012, traded away half the team that we had signed in the new ballpark. I get a call from you saying, hey, you got to do the show today. And I was on my way out of the country. I did that show with you the next morning. I was on the tram in John F. Kennedy Airport going from one terminal to the next on a connecting flight internationally. And you absolutely hammered me, hammered me. And we were already, we had a relationship off the field already at that point. That was the lowest point sort of for, for us together because you were so hurt as though you, you have a right to be hurt. Like, what right do you have? Put up your own money. And you interviewed me. It wasn't an interview. It was like a lecture. Are, are you sure? Are you sure uh, that I didn't, in that instance, just master manipulate you? Are you sure that I didn't uh, reel you in from the tram to say the things that I needed said on the radio? Because as all of uh, the people around you think, I am the master manipulator. Uh, no, man, I like, uh, I like Miami. I like South Florida, and there have been a handful of times. Well, hell, I did that interview with Rob Manfred uh, in defense of South Florida. My guess is he doesn't like how hurt I sounded either in that interview, the single worst interview ever done by a commissioner on the radio. Uh, you're famous. That was a famous one. People, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, Dan Levitard interviewed Rob Manfred, the commissioner, 
And uh, I had spoken to Dan before the interview and after the interview. And Dan had an opportunity and it, he, he went full Levitard. It was so bad, that interview. And from Rob's standpoint, they look back because I talked to Rob about it after the fact and his PR people. That created, you'd be proud to know what was going on within the offices on Park Avenue after that interview. They were despondent. They called ESPN to get me in trouble. They called ESPN to 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 uh, narc on him being asked difficult journalism questions. Like it wasn't. I didn't do anything. No one can listen to that interview and uh, hear sort of irresponsible work on my part. Uh, you can hear some emotion sort of protecting Miami, but um, I don't think uh, I don't think a whole lot of people would dispute that the questions he were he was being asked were fair questions. They were hard questions, but I guess he was kind of used to um, you know doing easy softball questions. Where you you were well prepared, but what struck me, and we spoke about this after, is there was a level of personal right? Talk about nothing personal. You sounded like you were personally hurt by what happened with the Marlins. And the irony is I'm listening to this and I'm such a big part of what caused you so much pain in so many ways over the years. Somehow you and I have always made it through the gauntlet of your Miami connection and your view of my role in sort of the the downfall of the Marlins, if not all of my, I assume you blame me for all of the U.S.-Cuba relations. Um, I don't blame you for anything other than being a really good businessman who took advantage of uh, people in our political city that aren't smart enough to see what it is that you were doing. But I would say that the best professional slash personal relationships I have uh, are all that either began with sort of challenges or headbutting or mutual respect growing from two different jobs being done, whether it be Pat Riley, Stan Van Gundy, my relationship with Stan Van Gundy. This is how it started. Uh, I was writing newspaper columns about whether or not Pat Riley should be the coach of the Heat or Stan Van Gundy. This is where it started. I remember where I was, uh, where he demanded to talk to me after I'd written like three or four columns. Uh, I pick up the phone and I'm talking to Stan Van Gundy and he's like, Stop saying in print that even Stan Van Gundy would say that Pat Riley is a better fucking coach than he is. Stop saying that because I never said that to you and you need to stop printing it as if it's fact when I've never said it. And that's where that relationship began. Uh, and so um, headbutting in our lines of work, um, that's not uh, uncommon. I never minded. And I, I've always understood what you've done. I've always appreciated, you know, after the whole situation that happened at, at your Moss Miami, where people, uh, you called me and I remember exactly where I was. And you again said to me, hey, we have to get on the air and it's not going to be fun for you. And uh, just be ready. And that is not, you were not giving me special attention. You were not giving me special privilege because of any relationship. So for you, it's always professional over personal in that regard when it has to be. Like at nut cutting time, when something's going on where you feel as though your domain is being encroached, you will draw a line that in other times you don't draw. And I have a hard time with that. I don't ever draw that line. So for me, I make it always professional, but there are times that it gets too personal for you. 
I don't remember who said this, but it stayed with me uh, that my loyalty ends sort of where my integrity begins. And that sounds super self-serious. But what happened at my 50th birthday party where you specifically, a difficult relationship for me to explain to people because of the reputation you have in Miami, because uh, people don't like some of the things you've done or don't like the way that you are or uh, don't know you well enough to see uh, where the merit lies. Uh, I have had to defend that relationship under the guise of good content. And I can see where you would see an inconsistency in you made good content on a stage as a wrestling manager telling the crowd fuck you, $1.2 billion. But it was at my birthday party where Miami was celebrating Miami with us and you were telling Miami, fuck you in my face in a way that I had to explain. Um, Yeah, it was uncomfortable, obviously, good content or not. The line between good content and comfort is one that I want to just touch on for a minute because that is something that the higher-ups, when you're not in the content business where you have to let people provide content, which is what ESPN is supposed to do for you and what they want you to do. Same with CBS on this side. But the line between good content and when an organization finally says no mas or we're not going to allow you to do X or Y, when you are the content provider and you decide when you're going to give in and when you are not, it's interesting. How much do you think about in advance or do you take it on a case-by-case basis when you say, you know what? I am going to draw this line third rail or not. And you're reminding me the whole 50th birthday and where you are the protector of yourself, your brand, your content. But there's going to be a time coming up, Levitard, where you're going to have to decide when the rubber meets the road. Um, Yeah. And when that happens, I look forward to navigating it, no matter how challenging it is. Um, You assume that. I don't know when it's going to come. I just... And someone who pretty consistently has uh, tried to make interesting things and hasn't actually had to spend a lot of time considering consequences. Like, uh, because of the way that I was raised, because it's so much a part of everything that I am, uh, my family made pretty extraordinary sacrifices so that I would have freedom. They made pretty extraordinary sacrifices so that I wouldn't have to make too many compromises. So, um, like, if I believe in something, there it, it can get tangled and there are nuances here. But if I believe in something strongly enough, uh, I don't actually do very much in the considering of consequences. I don't. I I do the thing and then the consequences are up to others. You understand the irony of what you're saying is that your whole background and your family's background, it's all about consequences of actions and of words spoken. So it's strange that you would say, I wonder if you've thought that through. No, no. Think about, no, this is why it's different. My family fled Cuba for freedom. My family left consequences for speaking your mind left propaganda, left censorship so that I would never have to deal with those things. I chose a living in a free press that could never exist in their country because freedom isn't something that was given to them. Freedom was given to me. I didn't earn freedom. 
Freedom had to be fought for by them. Freedom had to be fled for by them. And so they went and got it for me. And now, no, David, I don't have to uh, do very much measuring of what I say. Like, I understand that free speech doesn't apply to companies. And at some point, maybe I say something that gets me fired, but it hasn't happened yet. And I've been doing it for a good amount of time. I've gotten in trouble. I've gotten punished, but it hasn't happened yet. So you just talked about a conversation that I had exactly with Jose Fernandez about the freedom that he fled for and how he left consequences for the freedom. And he told me in the last one of the last conversations I ever had with him was about freedom. And it made me incredibly sad how he died in the pursuit of that freedom and how he felt he was invincible. But what strikes me about what you're saying is you have a perspective that I can never have. And. I can't speak to what you're saying in terms of that feeling freedom was given to me, but freedom, you say freedom was given to you, but I don't agree. You lived in a family. It'd be like growing up with Holocaust survivors, right? I didn't have Holocaust survivors in my family, parents or grandparents, but if I had, then I would be growing up still free, not in Germany or Europe, but here in the US. But it would be such a huge part of who I am. So while you were saying that you were born into freedom and it was given to you, it impacts everything you do. The background of your family, your mom, your dad, that is the fabric that makes you you. And that certainly made Jose Jose. And I think that to not acknowledge that, I, I, I must have heard you wrong because you're not, you and I are not in close to the same boat when it comes to understanding freedom. But what do you, I'm not understanding what you're saying about me that you think we're disagreeing on. Uh, the measuring of consequences? Yes, because it's, it, you are not your parents, you, right? But you are much closer to that situation than I've ever been or ever will be or ever can be. That's why I was equating it to if I had grown up in a Holocaust family. You grew up in a family, they fled from Cuba. I mean, they came with nothing and they did it for you. And, and that creates a whole level of guilt and a whole level of family and personal drama. But I'm talking about you understand better than anyone. And you're saying for you, consequences are not something that you want to think about because of your position. But I think you have to. Uh, one of the places where I have to consider consequences, and it is not uh, for me, is that with success has come the responsibility of being sort of an economy for people I care about. So therefore, if something happens to me where I'm reckless or flippant, um, it, it costs people other than me. And so that's one place where I have to sort of measure consequences. But if I believe in something enough, all of those people who work with me, all of them, know good and well the hills I'm willing to die on. So um, they, they wouldn't be too surprised um, if, if that ended up happening one day because, uh, because of either a mistake that I made uh, or hopefully more likely if I'm going to go out in flames, uh, a decision I've made. I think you're the type that when you go out in flames, you're going to have a flame retardant suit on and it will not be something that just happens matter of factly because your loyalty and your friendship to the people around you, your the way you are a family. And this is not me wanting to kiss your ass because I don't need to. And frankly, I'm not tall enough to even find it, but you are in a position where uh, you've made a lot of difference. And uh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate that you took the time to sit with us, Levitard. It's been something. You are actually exactly tall enough to kiss my ass. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>